Well, it's so good to see uh, each of you, Providence, if you're in this venue here um, or uh, all the other venues, the Fellowship Hall or Prisms or Amphitheater, welcome. We're really glad that you're here um, or uh, it may be that you're at home and uh, as well as to all of our guests, we're thrilled that you have joined us. Um, I'm sincere about that. We really are glad that you were here as a church family. Um, it's, it's the love of our life um, to uh, seek to honor the Lord in what we do and he's told us that uh, how we do that. It's to introduce all peoples to Jesus Christ and to grow them up to love and worship him. And as a church family, um, one of the ways that we seek to do that is to plant churches in, in around the world. You see, one of the uh, neat things that you read about in the Bible is that God has this, he's got this affection for the local church. Uh, you and I know that she's broken because we're here and so it's broken partly because of us. But like you look around what you see here and 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 you may think of more uh, glorious things that you can see uh, in the world, and yet what he looks is a group of people that have been rescued out of darkness, they're brought into light to worship his son. Uh, and, and so he loves to see this, and he loves to see this happening all around the world, and yet there's a lot of places where there's literally no church. And so as a church, what we uh, pray about, what we love to think about doing, is how do we partner so that local churches can be formed, planted, meaning that we go to places, share the gospel there, people come to faith in Christ, and then they begin to meet, then to grow so that they can be light in their own community, in their own city, in their own place in the world. And so we love doing this. And, and one of the ways that we seek to do that is actually to identify people in those places, in those countries like India, this is one I want to show you, and uh, where you find people that have graduated from some sort of Bible school, uh, and then they go out and they try to plant a church. And as a church family, about, um, about a year ago, we partnered with 10 different church plants. Well, uh, Pastor George was overseas um, over the last several weeks, and he sent us a picture just a few days ago that I want to show you right here. Now, George is obviously on the bottom right. Next to him, to his right, is a man. His name is Kamlesh. And Kamlesh from India uh, is, is a church planner that we as a church family actually support. What that means is that we pray for him. We also send him uh, some funds each month to help with his needs. Uh, and, the, and what he's doing over the next three years is seeking to plant a church. Well, Two. So there's four guys in the back, right? Well, the two guys on the far left, the guy in the pink shirt and the brown jacket, okay, Kamlesh led these two men to Christ this year. He then began to train them on how do you lead their friends to Christ, and they led the two guys standing up on the far back to Christ. Well, this year, this local church, okay, has, 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 has seen um, 19 people come to faith in Christ and be baptized, which is just a miracle in this culture. And there's another 50 people who have trusted Christ and they're waiting to be baptized. And so why I um, show that to you and share that with you, one is to just rejoice that God is doing some amazing things in, in all around the world, but also to commend you because he uses your faithfulness. He uses your faithfulness to pray and to give and to be connected to this body so that we can make partnerships like this with people around the world. And so I just want to thank you. I wanted you to be able to celebrate. They really did my heart good seeing these um, brothers in the Lord. 
uh, new brothers that, that, that have been added to the kingdom. And so I'm uh, incredibly, incredibly grateful. So if you are a guest here, we love the Bible here. And, and, uh, and we love the Bible really for two reasons. One, it's the Word of God and it offers us instruction. Um, but even maybe even more so than that is it points us to Jesus Christ, who's the Savior of our life. And so we love to work through a book. We're in Ephesians. And so if you brought that um, um, one, uh, we're, we're up to chapter four. If you don't have one in your hands, then there's lots of Bibles in the chairs near you. And, uh, and in that Bible, chapter four, uh, where uh, we will be uh, starting in verse 26, is on page 978. The two verses that uh, we want to look at are on something that's really pertinent to all of us, and that is anger. And so we want to ask God to help us. And so if you would, let's bow and let's pray together. God, we confess to you that, that anger is a part of our life. Um, and when we think back, not only to the days when we were angry, or maybe we're angry right now, and we don't know what to deal, do with that anger. We don't know how to deal with it. We look to you. We ask you to help us today. I also pray, Father, for those in the room who who think back on days maybe when they were angry and they acted on that angry um, in, in a way that, that, that brought to them and now brings to them repeatedly just memories of guilt and regret of what they, what they did in anger. And God, I pray that you would use this text to not only bring healing to our hearts, but also that you would give us instruction, instruction on how to manage and leverage and even wrestle with this anger and turn it into redemptive ends. And so, God, would you be our teacher? Would you speak to us? Would you help us to believe what we read, to understand it, and then to apply it to our life? We need your help now, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this week I, was, uh, I had a little story that I was reading about life in Cambodia. Really a tragic story that's sort of related to the idea of anger, so I want to share it with you. But back in the early 70s, almost 50 years ago, um, in the early 70s, there was a civil war. And so what they, um, one of the ways that they, that they uh, sought to fight each other was to actually plant or bury landmines. You know, I had a bomb that was planted underground you couldn't see in the hopes that the, that the other side, that they would step on it, it would ignite and kill a lot of people without them having to be there. Well, um, what was, what's, so millions of these landmines were planted, were, were buried in, in Cambodia. And today, 48 years later, it's an amazing thing, uh, 48 years later, there's four different groups seeking to identify, to, to, to find, because they're not marked. They're just out there. So they're not marked, and, and so they're seeking to find them and then to remove them. And the Four different groups say that still to, to this day, there are in between four and six million active landmines in the ground. And so they go around in villages and places that are not inside the city, and they put, they put little red flags where a landmine has been identified, where it's been found. It's still active. Now, what this has done to the culture is actually terrifying. For every single year, many of these are accidentally set off by unsuspecting people. And it even says um, that, that some 80, 80% of the victims of these landmines still today are boys and children out playing in the villages. 
It's a terrible thing. And what it's done is it's actually left a mark, which, which is, it's hard to imagine that they're what they now believe are 40,000 amputees in Cambodia. People who, who were the victim that lost some limb, some part of their body because they were in or around one of these landmines. It's also, as you can imagine, created a culture of fear. See, I don't, I don't fear my kids when they go out to the backyard, right, of what they're going to find, maybe a snake or something like that, but, but not a landmine. You can imagine just the terror if you lived in one of these villages of sending your kids out to play. Well, all of this tragedy, this real tragedy, it does illustrate a crisis in the human heart, and that is anger. It's very similar to it in the sense that anger is like an explosive. It's the dynamite of the soul. If you think about it, anger, it lies underground. It can't be seen, but once it's set off, it obliterates, it pulverizes, it destroys. You think about the different things that anger does to destroy. One of the first things it does to us is it actually destroys us. It, It can actually pulverize our body. This is what happens when you get angry, really angry. Your brain signals to the pituitary gland to actually secrete and then release um, a lot of cortisone and a lot of adrenaline. Well, that is that starts to flow through your body. What happens is the heart, it starts to speed up. And so your blood, it starts to speed up and your body temperature begins to rise. And the fact is, is this is something that God created the body to do to rescue us from danger. So if you're in the road and you look around and suddenly there's a truck and, and that fear, right, it actually does the same thing. It actually works through to where you have adrenaline and it gives you immediate energy to move out of the way quickly. The problem with anger is this, is that it sits for a long period of time. And that sustained anger over time, where we, we, we now learn, a lot of doctors now, are saying that it's more erosive to our physical health and even our actual heart than anxiety and fear and sorrow. That anger left unchecked, anger that just allows to reside within the heart, will destroy your heart. It also destroys community. You know that. Uh, Proverbs chapter 15 verse 18 says that a hot-tempered man stirs up strife. Every one of us knows that when we get angry, we are more inclined to throw our words or to throw looks or our fist or our remote control like a weapon. And so if you think about your life, I know in my life, most people wouldn't, wouldn't say, like, like if you could uh, find five words to tell a friend about who I am, right? Most people in the world uh, who know me wouldn't say, man, he's just this violent temper kind of guy. He's just you know, over the top temper. That's not how most people, and yet, When I think about some of my greatest regrets, in particular with my children, it's happened when I was angry. And most of us, if you think about some of your regrets, things that you said, facial expressions that you that you sent upon somebody, what you did with your hands or what you did with 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 things, it's oftentimes it's motivated by anger. And that creates a third destruction, and that's the destruction of our character. You think about your life. You think about people that you know that have been angry. What we do when we're angry is often very memorable. (laughs) And so you can have 50 days of gentleness and kindness and love and where you just, where you just, you know, and all of a sudden you can erupt one time and do things in your anger because there's just no control with that to where 
50 days of a certain characteristic can literally be obliterated in your life. And people will only remember that point when, man, do you remember, though, when that happened? Anger can be exceptionally memorable. Well, Paul's in prison, and Paul's not angry. He's in prison because he's a believer in Jesus Christ. And he wants the people in Ephesus who are outside of the church, who don't know Christ, to see Jesus Christ as consequential to everything in life. And yet he's in heaven. And so what he wants them to do is he wants the church to be his representatives. And so what he's doing in chapter 4, after three chapters of saying, this is what the gospel is, this is how we've been saved, he says, now, I urge you then as a church to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. We've been called to represent Jesus Christ who never sinned with his anger. And so what he wants us to do is to represent him. And what we saw from verses 17 to 24 was sort of the, it was the key. It was the paradigm of how God helps us change so that these areas of our life, that they can change, we can change. And then what he does is he takes that key and he applies it to several very basic areas of life. Last week we looked at verse 25, which is all about being honest. And now we get to, 26 and 27, which is about anger. So let's read it together. It says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So what I want to show you here, even before we take the Lord's Supper, right, is three things that God is going to do, that God does for us right here in this text to help us with our anger. And then we're going to end with three applications of how you and I can actually leverage this anger and move it toward redemptive ends. The first thing that we learn here is this, is that God affirms the basic goodness of anger. Now, some of you say, wait, I think he just went back to stuttering again. No, I didn't. Actually, it's... God affirms the basic goodness of anger. He says two words. Be angry. It's an imperative, which means it's not a suggestion. What that means is there are times when it is the right thing to do to be angry and the wrong thing not to be angry. Some of us have a hard time with that, and yet that's exactly how God is. And that's why he's the... He's the test of what is right and ideal and righteous. And we learn in Psalm chapter 7, verse 11, some things about God. There we learn that God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation or anger every day. So think about this. Here is God, your creator. We're created in his image to be like him. We relate like him. And it says that he is righteous in all that he does. He's upright, never sinning. And yet it says that he feels indignation or anger every single day. There's people in this world, maybe even in this room, that would say, you know, I just don't believe that. I believe in a God of love and not a God of anger. But friends, you have to understand that a God who never gets angry can't be a God of love. Because anger is the protective arm of our love. Anger... God's and yours. It literally rises within our heart when what we love is threatened. That's why you don't get angry when something's threatened that you don't care about. We get angry when what we love is threatened. That's why you get angry when your kids are mistreated. And if you thought about it, you probably get angrier when your kids are mistreated than when my kids are mistreated. How many of you have ever lost sleep 
because one of your kids was mistreated. Probably somebody. How many of you have lost sleep because my kids were mistreated? Probably not many of you. Why? It's not because you don't like them, right? It's because you have a special kind of love for your kid. And so when your love, what the object of your love, when that is threatened, anger rises within the heart. See, there's a lot of people that think that the opposite of love is, is, is anger. It's not. It's hatred. And the final step of hatred is indifference. And the thing about God is he's, he's just not indifferent. He loves perfectly. He loves all of us absolutely perfectly. And so he feels anger when that which he loves is threatened. Let me show you a great example of this, okay? It's Jesus. Now, the Bible takes great steps in order to show us that Jesus was without sin. And yet this happened in his life. We find it in Mark chapter 3. The day was a Sabbath day. And there was a man who went to the synagogue, right, the church at the time, to, to, to worship. And Jesus was there, and he went there, and he had a withered hand. I don't know exactly what that means, but in my mind, I sort of imagine that his fingers and maybe his wrists were sort of withdrawn like this, and he couldn't open up his hand. He went to Jesus because he heard that Jesus could do miracles, that he performed some healings, and so maybe, I, maybe he could heal my hand. And so he goes on the Sabbath, and Jesus is there. We're also told that there's some Pharisees who were there, some religious leaders. They were just swallowed up with legalism. And they had created some rules. Okay, Now, first, you need to understand something about these, these guys. They don't love Jesus. They don't respect Jesus. And we're told that they were hoping to accuse Jesus. They're threatened by Jesus. Something they loved was threatened. And so they were angry with Jesus. Well, they had made a bunch of rules of what you could do and what you couldn't do on the Sabbath. They weren't God's rules. They were their rules. And the fact is that any time somebody did something that they had never thought about being in the rule book, they just said, well, it's on the outside. You're not supposed to do that. And because nobody sits down and says, now, where should we put like healings, right? Because none of us really can do that. They didn't have healing on the Sabbath as part of the rules. Well, suddenly Jesus Christ comes and he has authority over all things. He can do miracles. And so they look, and it actually says that they look to see if he would do a miracle on the Sabbath day in order to accuse him of breaking the law. And so Jesus asked them a question. He says, guys, let me ask you something. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? And it says that they were silent. Why were they silent? Because they didn't want to authorize his behavior They wanted him to authorize his behavior so that if he broke their law, they would say, he's a rule breaker. And notice what it says. It says, Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart. Now, why was Jesus angry? It's because Jesus loves. He loved the man with a withered hand, and he wanted healing and good for him. He also loved the Pharisees. Each of those were individuals who he created to worship him, to know them, for them to know him. And yet they did not respect him. They didn't want to be near him. They hated him. They were wrapped up in all kinds of legalism. And so they weren't happy as people. And Jesus loved them. They were threatened by the sin of legalism that they had wrapped around themselves. But then there's another thing I think that he really loved. And that was the Sabbath. He created it. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. And he made it not to be a prison for us, but to be a gift for us. Say, hey, here's a day. Why don't you take a day to rest? A gift. And they had taken that gift and they had manipulated it to the place to where they just said, you know what? Let's make it a prison. 
Well, anytime you love something and it's threatened, anger rises in the heart, including in the heart of Jesus. So all this to say is that when truly lovely things are dishonored, we should get angry. When you see somebody created in the image of God and they are mistreated, when you see a child mistreated, you should get angry. When you see terrorism, you should get angry. When you see assault, you should get angry. Why? Because God gets angry. He looks down and he sees things that he loves, people he loves, his word being violated, and it causes anger to rise in his heart. When you see these things, the protective arm of love should rise. And that's why he says, be angry. But he makes a really quick turn, right? We're only two, two words in. So the first thing we see is that God does affirm the basic goodness of anger because goodness originates with him. And he gets angry. The second thing he says, though, is that God warns us of anger's potential damage. And that's when he says, but do not sin. <laughs> Be angry and do not sin. And the reason, you see, is obviously sin separates Anger is an explosive. It's the dynamite of the soul. And like a stick of dynamite, it can do good and it can do evil. It can move a mountain so that you can build a road, but it can also destroy a village and all the people therein. And he cares about us. He cares about what it can do. And it's interesting that God is able, because he's perfect, to hold this explosive called anger with a pure heart and with very steady hands. But the Bible says that we can't. The reason is because we have trembling hands, because we have an impure heart. And so anger comes to him, anger comes to us. He's able to manage it really well, but there's two reasons that we don't, okay? Why is it that it is so dangerous for us, this anger? I think there's two things. Number one is we get confused about what to love. We get confused about what's lovely in the world about what we should love. Let me show you. What we learned up in verse 17, 18, and 19 is that you and I, we all have cravings in the heart that only God can satisfy. And when we are far from God, when we're distant from Him, and our heart is not being satisfied in God, the heart gets hungry and thirsty. It still has those cravings. But it says when we're far from God, it says that our understanding is darkened. And so it's sort of like being in the kitchen. And we know there's lots of bottles of water around. Some of them have poison in them and some of them are pure water. And yet the lights are off and you can't distinguish one from another. And so what it does is when our heart is thirsty and we're separated from God and the only thing that can satisfy our heart is God and the lights are off in our understanding. Well, what, what it says is that we tend to ask good things to become God things. We ask good things to do what only God can do. And the Bible calls these idols. Where we set our affection, our hope, that maybe if I had enough of this or more of this, then I would be satisfied within my heart. And it's interesting what this does, you see. So let's just say, what's a good thing? A good thing might be something like encouragement. You have friends who encourage you. You do something that you serve in the church, and then people come up and they encourage you. And you think, that's a good thing. But what if you make encouragement a God thing? What if you make it an idol? I have to have the approval of people in my life. Well, what happens is this, is that if what you love, approval, is threatened because people don't say thank you, or they don't say, man, that was awesome, great job, then anger rises in the heart. 
A lot of us, after a long day, we like peace at night. And some of us, we make peace, which is a good thing, into a God thing. We say, you know what I want? I'm out of words. I'm out of, I'm out of energy. I'm out of everything. I just want to sit. I want to sit on my couch. I don't want anyone to talk to me. I don't want to have to do homework. I don't want to do I, nothing. This is a me night. I'm going to eat what I want. I'm going to do what I want. And so we turn peace into an idol, peace into a God thing. This is what we love. And all of a sudden you get home and your wife says, hey, let's have a conversation. And you can get angry. Why? Because what you love is now threatened. The kids may get into an argument. And you may, and you may get angry not because you see something in them that, that's, 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 that, that stirs your heart. It's they're interrupting my peace. I have to discipline and, and now I'm mad because you've intruded on my idol. We see this in all kinds of, tonight, there's going to be literally people that are mad because their team lost, angry. You don't know a single person out there. They've never done anything for you and they never will. And yet you can be angry at the other team. You know why? Because they're a threat to what you love. In other words, we can get angry at a lot of things that aren't even that noble. And this is where there's a problem. We can be as angry when we see a child being assaulted as when someone pulls out in front of us because it's my space. I want my space on the road. And so what happens is our love is so spread that there's so many things that we love because we made so many good things God things that now we get angry more often than we need to. Because we just love so many things that aren't even all that good. And the second reason I think that we have these shaky hands with anger and why it's such a risk is because even when it's noble anger, we don't always manage it well. In other words, you can see a child being assaulted and then still respond in a sinful way. You see, what we're going to see here is that it's God's plan, literally, for us to leverage our anger into a fuel that will make a surgical strike on the evil that's threatening what we love. So let's just say that your child is sinning. Okay? Let's just say that... One of your kids hits another one of your kids or something, or lies or something, okay? Now, godly anger, meaning that if we respond to this, and we're like, that's not right, and I'm going to respond to it in a healthy way, what you'll do is you'll seek to target, surgically strike the sin, but not the kid. But here's what happens. When our flesh is at the helm, whether it's unrighteous anger or righteous anger, we tend to be like a B-52 bomber that just carpet bombs not only the sin, but we also tend to carpet bomb the kid. And we come in and we just, guns blazing, we just drop bombs in anywhere they land because we're angry. And what you find is this, is that when you are not slow to anger and when you carpet bomb, uh, everything that we talked about in terms of the dynamite of the soul, it occurs. It breaks up the family. It breaks up relationships. It breaks up your peace. It breaks up your character. It breaks up your reputation. People begin thinking, this is how he behaves. This is how she behaves. And so God warns us of its potential damage. And the third thing is that God directs us to wrestle our anger towards redemption towards redemptive ends. He says to us, do not let the sun go down on your anger. 
Now, he's not giving a six-month pass to Eskimos living up in the North Pole when the sun doesn't go down, okay? And those living on the equator, they only got 12 hours. That's it. Get angry, get out of anger. That's not what he's saying there, because sometimes you get angry after the sun has gone down. It's not literal, it's metaphor. What he's saying is this, let the day of your anger be the day that you corral your anger and press it and push it towards redemptive ends. Don't just let the sun keep coming up and going down and that root of bitterness begin to grow. He says, give no opportunity to the devil. And the reason is because the devil is looking for one. He's looking in order to disrupt the unity of the body. He is looking to sow a crop of bitterness and he's looking to make the cross look weak. What does that mean? Well, in chapter four, verse 32, he says, forgive others as Christ has forgiven you. And so here's how this works. When you trust Jesus Christ because of what he did on the cross and he forgives you, and then you take that and someone harms you and you forgive them because you've been forgiven, you are showing how consequential and powerful the cross is, not only in your relationship with God, but your relationship with other people. But if, however, you're harmed and conscious of the cross, you don't even care about it, you don't think about it, and you refuse to forgive somebody else. And you let the sun keep going up and going down. And there's still that root of bitterness. Well, Satan, in that moment, has made the cross look weak in your life. And so he says, don't let the sun go down. Give no opportunity to the devil. So what can we do? I want to show you, right, how does the three things that we've learned from verse 17 to 24, how does it apply here? How do we actually practice this? Okay, How do we leverage or wrestle our anger into redemptive ends. Three things. First, let's slowly examine the source of our anger. I know that your anger, just like mine, it feels paramount when you're angry. But I want you to know it's only the symptom and not the source. And if you do not find the source of that anger, there will be no healing. None. And the ideal you need to understand is to be slow to anger, not to have no anger. Why? Because God is slow to anger. This is why James 1.19 says, let every person be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So this is what I mean, tracing the symptom of your anger to its source. The next time you get angry, just back up just for a second and ask this question. What is the big thing that I'm seeking to defend right now? What love in my life is being threatened that's causing me to get angry? You could also ask it this way. Am I angry because God's word is violated or because my word? Am I angry because God's will is violated or because my will is violated? And very often what you're going to find is a little bit of shame. And the reason is because the majority of times that we're angry, it's because of our ego. We're going to find that it's not because God's been violated. It's because we have been violated. Our pride, our ego. And so I want to encourage you to find the source Do not let the root of bitterness grow. And the reason is because roots become shoots. And shoots become trees. And trees become a forest. So trace it to its source. The second thing is let's ask God to renew our imagination as we repent and obey. Okay, so whether you find, so you trace it back and say, okay, this is why I'm mad. Now, whether it is a righteous or just a selfish reason that you're angry, 
You still need God's help to manage that. And in that very moment, that's when you go back up to verse 22, when he says, look, put off the old self and the old manner of life, how you would normally deal with this anger without the spirit of God, without the word of God in your life, and put on the new self. It's available to you because of what Christ has done. You see, when you do that, you put on the new self. Now, all of a sudden, you have the power to hold this anger with really strong hands. And that gives you the time, if you're slow to anger, to pray. And what do you pray? You pray at that moment, verse 23. God, would you renew the imagination, the spirit of my mind? And the reason this is important is because whatever captures your imagine, your imagination will govern your behavior. Let me show you how this works in a real-life example. Let me just tell you up front, I forgot one time. This, is not, this has not happened to my family. Okay, you're going to say, oh, well, he's got three teenagers. This is going on. It, really isn't. It could. We're not above it, but it's not. Okay. So let's just say you have a teenager and your teenager wants something. Okay. And you say no. Now this is the person that their entire life you've sacrificed for. Okay. This is also a situation to where literally the rest of the human population would affirm that what they want to do is destructive to them. They're the only one in the whole world that doesn't know that this is destructive. Okay. They, but they want to do it. And you say no, because you love them. You want to protect them. And suddenly their anger ignites because they didn't get what they want. Their love is threatened. And suddenly they say things that feel like daggers. Your teenager says, I hate you. You always say no. You've never done anything good for me. And suddenly your anger ignites. Now listen to me. Whatever you vividly imagine next will determine your next step. Three possibilities. If you vividly imagine the depth of your wound because of their words, it's a possibility that you develop a pattern of withdrawal from them where you lose the child, but you save yourself from further insult and injury. So you pull away. If you vividly imagine retaliation, you may go at them. And because you have 20 or 30 years more practice in verbal abuse, you may win. And still lose your child. But there's another way. And that is, if you can sit slowly under God and vividly imagine redemption, what could take place in this moment if the sin was removed, if the folly was removed? You would be able at that moment to make a redemptive surgical strike where you draw near to the child in love. You calmly speak the truth in love and thereby striking the sin without striking the child. And so your imagination becomes critically important at that moment. But if we are not slow to anger, we will never pause to allow our imagination to get past immediate retaliation. The third thing that we need to do, which is so critically pertinent to what we're about to do with the Lord's Supper, is keep one eye on Jesus as we wrestle with our anger. You see, as you look at your situation, I want to encourage you to keep one eye on Christ. And the reason is because he and he alone is able to navigate you out of the prison of your anger. When you read the story of Jesus, you see something taking place, and that is that humanity, including you and me, we sinned against God, and God became angry because of our sin. And it says that he vividly imagined what could happen next. 
And he didn't vividly imagine the wound causing him to withdraw from us, nor did he vividly imagine retaliation causing, us, causing him to carpet bomb us. No, it says that he vividly imagined redemption. So instead of withdrawing or instead of hurting, he sent his son. And Jesus Christ came to this earth. He lived a righteous life, and yet we hated him. We spat upon him. We mocked him and we crucified him. And so Jesus calmly took our undeserved anger. But on the cross, we're also told that Jesus took the anger we deserved. You see, Jesus had prayed, let this cup pass for me, but not as I will, but as you will. The cup that Jesus was praying about was the cup of God's wrath that was stored up against all of humanity. It was his anger towards us. It was his indignation being stored every single day against sin. And Jesus, on that cross, not only did he drink our anger, he also took the cup of the Father's anger that was directed towards us. He took both cups and emptied both of them. Why did he do this? Well, because he loved us. And he made a surgical strike, not on us, but on the sin that threatened us. Providence, if we as a people will be melted by this knowledge, then when other people wrong us, we will receive fuel to imagine doing the same thing. And so God has given us this gift to remember and proclaim what he's done. It's called the Lord's Supper. And so for those who will be serving us, elders and deacons, if you want to go and stand up and head to the back as we prepare to take this, I want you to think about this for a moment. Jesus told his followers to take it. He told us to do this. He told us to do it so that we would remember what he's done and so that we would proclaim to one another that we believe what he's done. So if you've never trusted Christ, we would humbly ask you to let these things pass. But if you do know Christ as your Savior and Lord, we invite you. We invite you to take of of, of the cup and of the bread, which is symbolic of his blood and his body. But we ask you that while this is being passed, that you take these moments and just ask God, is there any sin in my life that I need to confess so that you can do this with a clean and clear conscience? Okay, so let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for the mercy that you pour out to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you, God. We thank you, Christ, that you took the cup. Not only did you take our cup, you took the Father's cup. You drank it all so that we didn't have to. We thank you, Father, for showing us the way through your son, Jesus. And I pray now, God, that you would search our heart, test us, and see if there's any grievous way in us. Help us to confess any sin in our life, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.